You're listening to the Cars of Carlisle Network, podcast episode number 70, Rob Dyson and Dyson Racing. Cars of Carlisle is your favorite internationally downloaded podcast about all things automotive. Darren and his CFC team are ever searching for interesting automotive happenings, real stories about real car people, and fun features to inform and entertain you. Each week, the Cars of Carlisle crew brings you show topics ranging from car shows to team adventures to auto racing weekends to behind-the-scenes human interest stories from car nuts that live across town, across the country, or even across the globe. Come join the road trip. Today, meet Rob Dyson from Poughkeepsie, New York a lifelong racer who has been involved in various racing series. In follow-up to the Cars of Carlisle team's visit to Dyson's racing facility during the Rally North America event, Darren recently interviewed Rob to bring these exciting racing stories to you. Starting his racing career in 1974, Rob entered the sport from the grassroots, driving a Datsun 510 in the SCCA. Over the decades, Mr. Dyson collected multiple racing victories and accolades while rising through the ranks in various race series. In this episode, you're going to hear about tracks like Lime Rock and Watkins Glen, and ride along in marquees that include Lola, Mazda, and Porsche. It's time to don your fireproof suit, racing gloves, and helmet. So, let's get wrapped up. Hello, Cubers, and welcome back to your favorite informative automotive podcast. I am your trusted host, Darren, and this week we will be talking with Poughkeepsie, New York-based former racer and race team owner, Rob Dyson. And I think this is an interview you definitely want to listen to. We first met Rob when Scott and I were on the Rally North America. We ended up there as a checkpoint as we're passing through the uh, upstate New York area. And uh, we were invited to go through his racing facility, some amazing vehicles there involved in the Le Mans series, the Pirelli World Challenge series. Rob has been racing since the 70s. His son now races. Uh, they have involvement uh, in a, from a global standpoint and really have quite the impressive collection of vehicles and race cars there. But this episode is uh, dedicated to Dyson Racing and, and Rob telling you about his past and his involvement in the racing world. So let's get into that uh, here momentarily. But before we do, this week's trivia question is related to one of the series that Dyson Racing has been involved in, and that is the Pirelli World Challenge, the PWC series. So my question to you is this, what is the highest class in PWC racing? That answer at the end of this episode. So let's go to, to Poughkeepsie, New York and talk to Rob. It's, uh, it's really an opportunity to expose um, what Dyson Racing is and what it's about to others that may not otherwise know. You know, Dyson Racing started when I uh, kind of began my love affair with the internal combustion engine at the age of about eight years old. Okay. And uh, I, um, you know, worked on cars when I was a kid. And on a, when you live on a, on a farm, like we did on uh, weekends and summers when we, I was a kid, then we ultimately moved up. I grew up in suburban New York, but we had a farm in Millbrook, New York. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, that gives you the ability to start doing stuff, and and one thing led to another. 
And I didn't think about doing it competitively until after I got out of grad school in 74. And I said, geez, you know, I, I, you know, it's the old what's it like out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been a race fan and worked on, on a couple of race cars and had been following racing for a long time. And I said, geez, maybe I should do it. So, so I asked my wife and she went along with it and said, well, sure, do it. And I said, well, I'll just do it for a year, see what it's like. Well, one thing led to another and won a, a whole bunch of races the first year I, I went out there and, and just felt comfortable driving. So started racing a little bit more and one thing led to another and we kept moving up and as my businesses got a little bit bigger and a little bit better, I could afford to do a little bit more. So I started doing more and that was it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I- the long and the, long and the short of it is, is that, uh, you know, we've been doing it, uh, I've been competing myself i've drove cars for about 34 35 years and then chris came up and so we just kept the wheel turning well sure and i i from my research and remembering when i was there through rally north america in, in your shop um i think it all started your wife's name emily but she was your your crew of one right and it was a Datsun 510 sedan of all things that won that Watkins gun race right so. that's right she was uh it was she and I when we first started, and then I got one of the kids that worked at the farm to join us, and, and it went from there. And then a national championship um, soon, uh, that would have been about six, seven years later in 1981, right? Piloting a, That's right. a Nissan 200 SX. That's right. I, um, I, I ran the runoffs in, in uh, 80 and 81, um, and... Um, the uh, idea that we what we did was we just uh, you know just succeeded. Then in '82 we did a kind of a short season, and then in '83 we decided to move up. Um, my good friend Bob Aiken said, "You got to stop club racing and come to IMSA." And so I looked at the Firebird and thought that that was a pretty slick design. That would be a pretty good GTO car. Okay, and. Um, or a Trans Am car, you could almost race both. You could both series with the same car with minor minor changes. Right. And so I got uh, got a guy named Bob Cuneo at Chassis Dynamics in Waterbury. He had done some work for us on our 200 SX to build up the car, and it was a little bit delayed, so we got started late. And we ran, uh, I think maybe eight races, eight or nine races with the car. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, it was an adventure. I think we learned a lot um, uh, how to make a car work, and it had some flaws in it that we had to surmount. But but the car was fundamentally pretty quick, and uh, and uh, we we did uh, Pat. Pat Smith, who had joined me in the club racing when we were doing it part-time, and even then, Pat was doing everybody was part-time in those days, mm-hmm. including especially me. And uh, so, um, you know, we did our own engines and did a lot of the car work, and I did a lot of the car work on a car myself, even then. And so we uh, ran on uh, ran the IMSA with the GTO car, and then we did a couple of Trans Am races, as a matter of fact. Okay. And, uh, we did fairly well, and I 
uh, then uh, I started looking at moving up because I felt that this um, GTO Pontiac that we had was really a prototype in the truest sense of the word in that it was there was no none none on the planet like it. Mm-hmm. So I said, gee, maybe we ought to start taking a look at prototype racing. And I started talking to the people at, at March. In those days, March had a pretty good car and not thinking I could get a Porsche. And Bob Aiken intervened and introduced me to Al Hobart. And then Al, uh, Al came along and uh, we started talking. We actually hit it up and got a pretty good friendship and off we went. So... Was that the Porsche uh, 962? Well, what happened was Bruce Levin, Bruce Levin owned the car, and he had ordered another car from Al, and Al said, look, you know, you're going to get your other car. Why don't you let me sell the car that you've got to Rob Dyson and get him going? Okay. And Bruce and I made a deal, and off we went. So uh, I bought 101 from Bruce. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, that's when you were in IMSA GTP. Well, that was around the time you mentioned Pat Smith, or you know, helping you out from the beginning. But uh, wasn't that about the time he was named Mechanic of the Year? And then also in '86, you were Most Improved Driver. So you you guys both had some shared accolades about that time, right? Yeah. Well, Pat Pat finally uh, he he was a, a shop instructor at our local um, at our local Votech uh, school here, and. Uh, and he did that, uh, you know, uh, during the winter, obviously, and during the school year. And then he had time in the summer. Well, finally, I said, "Well, we're going to move up. We got to have you. I got to have you come along." And I think we got to do it full time. And um, and uh, and that's when uh, when we got the car in '84 when we started doing a lot of racing. And I said, "Look, we're going to move up. You, you know, well, let's work out a deal, and you give up the shop teaching job and just come on along with me." And that's what we did. <laughs> right. So okay. at the end, of, so at the end of the day, uh, you know, we just uh, we were able to put the ingredients together. And uh, Pat and I, are, are, we, we're still very close friends. And and Pat, but Pat, Pat retired after 28 years of running cars, but uh, he. Um, he was a, a key ingredient, mm-hmm. probably one of the smartest, innately smart guys I've ever met, and wow. uh, had a, a remarkable, he knew mechanics. Mm-hmm. He knew how parts of a car worked. Mm-hmm. Right. Not to say that I didn't, but he, he knew how all this stuff worked. So when we made adjustments, we knew, we knew kind of in advance of what, 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 what it would do. So our learning curve was a, was for just he and I and a couple other guys that had, that had come on with us, we, our learning curve was pretty quick. Sure, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I think there's there's a difference between having the book awareness and knowledge of how uh, rod and piston and everything like that, but it sounds like Pat is at a level where he sees the, the vehicle as almost a... Um, uh, like a, a organism, he knows that if we do this to the the chassis, that that we're going to have to adjust with this, and that everything is interdependent upon itself. And just knowing before it even happens what to expect, and that's like you said, that's right. That's very that's rare. right. Yeah, it is an that's ecosystem. Right. I think I think I think Pat Pat had a had a a good sense about him, and uh, he hired we hired a, another guy, Ed Hosier, who's still with us. Um, Ed was, was also a, uh, he was a, 
uh, again, innately intelligent. He was a terrific auto mechanic as well. And what was great about Ed was that he also knew um, electrical and computers. Mm, okay. That helped. That helped a great deal, too. Absolutely. And that only got more and more sophisticated and complex as you come out of the 80s into the 90s and on through. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Well, then, from GTP then, right, um, starting to get into GTP IndyCar, the open wheel, from a, that standpoint, correct? Some um, Cosworth involvement, Lola, and, and then Long Beach? Yeah, that was kind of a funny. We, uh, I said, gee, maybe we ought to try uh, IndyCar racing. And uh, uh, I asked around, and, and Dick Simon had a car that Ari Leindyke had been running, a, 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 an 88 Lola. Okay. And um, I bought the car, and then we needed engines. In those days, uh, Cosworth had had was developing a pretty sophisticated engine over and above the standard DFX that they were running. But that was when Chevrolet came in. And so the Chevy guys, um, all the Chevy guys, they had... Um, you know that was all the top top teams, and there was no way of getting onto that onto that deal. So we we needed engines. We couldn't get the good ones from Cosworth. So I called Leo Mel, and he had some Cosworth test engines that they had used. Um, apparently, when they asked teams to test tires, they would provide Goodyear used to provide the engines. But when Chevrolet came along, Chevrolet said, no, no, we don't have any problems supplying the engines because we want to get more time on the engines so that we can make sure that they work. So don't, we don't need your, your engines. And so all the top teams, which was, you know, Haas and Penske and Gurney and Voigt and, uh, and, um, gee, I'm trying to think of who else would, would have gotten them. But anyway, the top, you know, three or four teams, maybe five teams, got them. So mm -hmm. Leo had these engines available. So I said, "Well, gee, can you can you lend us one?" And that's what he did. And he lent us a couple of Cosworth engines. So we were dealing with a, 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 a eighty-eight in eighty-nine. We were dealing with an eighty-eight Lola and a and uh, with Cosworth engines that were probably three generations behind everybody else. But <laughs> so we started we started going into it, and I. I I quickly identified the fact that that it, it's a very very competitive series. I'm not making any mistake on, but and James Weaver was clearly up to the task. <clears throat> okay. Clearly up to the task. He had no issues with speed, but it was kind of we're behind the eight ball and it's going to be tough. But um, we had then we had Kendall Oil and they they stepped up. A guy named Bill Wishnick, who we started to get into IndyCar, and uh, the idea was uh, to see what it was like. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in those days, um, the Chevys were coming in, and so all the teams had Chevys. And then there were a few teams that are kind of up to date cars, worse. We couldn't get any of them. So we went to Goodyear, and Leo Mel lent us a couple of Cosworth engines to run. So we were running a 
a year old car, although I think the eighty eight Lola was actually probably a little bit better than the eighty nine Lola. But and you had a good but, re- uh, and you had a really good relationship with Goodyear going back to your your GTO days. I know you you built up a, a working relationship with them from a really a radial tire development that then kind of became a full. Uh, full tire support program, so that you had to, you had put in the time into that relationship, correct? That's really true, and 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 the the other deal was is that um, was that so we so we started running the car and uh, we ran uh, four or five races. I can't remember all of them, but I realized that this was not where our home should be. We it just wasn't. It wasn't kind of enough. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It was a very, look, it's very competitive. Those teams are great. IndyCar racing is great racing. But for us, it just didn't quite work. We, we, were, we, we were not open-wheel guys, and the prototypes were very interesting to us. I think it was we could do more with them. Okay. And we felt we could do more with them with our resources, so we just went back. And in 1990, we went back to sports cars. Okay, very good. Do you just just as we kind of go through the, this? I find I think that my listeners will love it too. Just the chronology of of how Dyson Racing came to be from you and Emily in '74 and the Dotson all the way forward. But just uh, may, may I pause and ask you a question? Do you have a personal, or have you had a personal favorite track? Of all that you've, were all the places you've raced. Oh sure, yeah. I think the long course at Watkins Glen is probably, probably the one that I really enjoyed racing. Okay. Um, I remember racing there in in '74 when we were club racing when they were still running F1 races, and I remember running the running up there when they reopened the track and after it had been closed down for a long time, it was closed down. And running the running the um, run the Porsches because they for a long there was a long period of time when they weren't running any races there and uh, and but that long course is just just terrific it's just got a great it's just got great flow to it the the corners are great it's um, safe fast mm-hmm. I think of course Lime Rock Lime Rock is one of my favorites that's uh, you know kind of a home track. As it, as I think Watkins Glen was, right. Lime Rock is about forty minutes from the house. It's about an hour and ten minutes from the shop, and uh, you know it was just one of these things where um, where uh, you know we had a lot of miles on at, 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 at Lime Rock, and I used to we used to go to Lime Rock. Pat and I we used to go to Lime Rock after school and after work. You could get there on Tuesdays. They had open practice on Tuesdays at Lime Rock in those days, and you could run whatever you brung. And we take the Datsun over and run it. Just run for you know, I think it was it was twenty five dollars if you got there one o'clock, and it went down to fifteen if you got there at four. Okay, and it went till five. So we got there at four, and got we got there at quarter to four, four o'clock, and then we run. We'd run for a little bit, try something, run for a little bit, try something. So. It was really, you know, really a kind of a test track for us, and it was mm-hmm. ideal for that car at that track because, you know, you could figure out suspension or whether there was some kind of thing we should do with the with the toe on the front end. There wasn't much you could do on the rear, but uh, you know, just checking stuff out. So sure. both both Watkins Glen and 
and uh, Lime Rock are real favorites. There's no doubt about that. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So we get. Uh, I appreciate that. I, I was. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. And in fact, the the week that we saw you uh, by way of Rally North America, we had hot laps. They had, uh, had rented the track for Rally North America, and we had some hot laps at the Glen. And uh, what people don't realize is that it feels very different. You know better than anybody that when you you're on the track at speed, you're down among those blue those light blue painted walls. You just feel like you're kind of running through a uh, almost through a canyon. It, it's uh, there's a lot more pitch and elevation change than you realize when you're watching something on TV. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's uh, absolutely, that's really true. I, it's, it's, it has elevation changes. In fact, there's not, no surface that's really parallel to the, parallel to anything. I mean, it's, you're going either uphill or downhill, <laughs> yeah. either in every corner and every straightaway. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that you gotta be uh, you gotta be under game no matter where you are on that track. But that's, yeah, for sure. That's for great. sure. You, so you come out of Indy, uh, get back into GTP, correct? Right. Okay, and then uh, I know that had some podium finishes and uh, a win down in Tampa. That uh, getting back to it with the World Challenge, right? Yeah, Tampa. Tampa. We did uh, we did a race at Tampa. That was the last race uh, win. I think domestically for the 962 ever. I don't think there was any other 962 the one after that. Okay. And Tampa, that was the last race of the season. We finally, funny, I think that was the only race when we had. We had several podium fish, finishes, but that was the that was in the days when the when the Nissan cars were, uh, which was the successor to Datsun, where the Nissan cars were really running strong. Mm, okay. Okay. Gotcha. And then uh, I know WSC with the Ferrari 348, you know, that, uh, that V8, um, some Indy, Indianapolis Raceway time, correct? Yeah, that was a car where we first met up with Bob Riley. We bought an old uh, uh, Spice car. After, Spice was going out of business, and we bought a chassis from them as they were going out of business. Okay. Real junk. And it okay. was a real junk chassis, but we tried to do our best with it, but the the key thing in this deal is that they said it was going to use street-derived engines. So I looked at, ironically, Road and Track used to publish, I don't know whether they do it now, but Road and Track used to publish kind of a summary of all of their cars that they tested and it included the, the type of engines every car that they tested that year. So I got that issue out, had it on the, on the coffee table, and just pulled it out and started taking a look, and I went down the column, and I said, gee, you know that... A three and a half liter Ferrari V8 might be a pretty good piece. Mm-hmm. So we went. So we got out the word. In those days, there was no internet, and we just called around a bunch of junkyards, and they had a. We got a couple of 348 engines, and we sent them down to Ted Wentz, who in those days Ted was out in Long Island, and Ted made them into race engines. And uh, they were based on a Cosworth that turned out. Oh, so okay. it was a familiar. It was a it was a familiar shape, and uh, Ted did a great job on the engines, and off we went. And it was um, it was uh, you know it sounded everybody said it sounded more like a Ferrari than the Ferraris did. That we were running <laughs> the the, the, the three thirty three Ferraris that showed up, but our car it sounded pretty neat. We ran we ran unsuccessfully for a lot of races. The car was really deficient. 
but uh, we wanted to make it better, and we talked. Uh, so I said, "Well, hell, let's 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 see if Bob Riley's available." And Bob came, and we did some testing, and and Bob said, "You know, I'm trying to do a, a prototype car now myself. So why don't you take a look at that?" And we took a look at it, and uh, we we were the first ones that that did the order for the for Bob's. Uh, Bob's uh, Mark III, it was a Riley and Scott Mark III, and then we were the first guys, we did an order for one, and, and then we decided to buy another one as a spare. Mm-hmm. Right. Not not knowing how many Bob was going to build, I figured, well, we better get two for parts. So um, so off we went, and uh, we got the car, and we put a, v, a Ford V8 in it. We had Ben Lozano do the engine. Okay. Ben was a skilled, uh, well-known, uh, he and his brother were well-known uh, Ford V8 engine builders, and I thought that the Ford product was a little bit, I thought it was a little bit stouter, stronger than the than the than any other V8 product. So yeah. we had Benny do the thing, and as soon as I got in the car at uh, at uh, Daytona, I took the car out first when we first got it, and I I knew right away that I got out of the car and I said, Bob, this car is a real runner. Oh, nice. It was. Stout. It was stout and strong yeah, and yeah. benign and real good. It was really an effective, effective product. Good platform. Yeah. So off we went, and then we started working with Bob and and uh, and, and Bob Riley and Mark Scott, and Bill was peripherally involved, and he got progressively more involved. And off we went, and we ran against the the Ferraris, which was great, great fun. We had some great competition between. Uh, Moretti and us, and uh, and the cars were great. They were strong and and uh, really, uh, really solid, and enjoyable cars to drive. Nice. Well, and I know that just from my research that uh, twelve hours of Sebring was that was that that reach goal that your racing team was going for, right? And that was around that same time frame, would it not? Yeah, Sebring was the holy grail. We uh, we never won Sebring. We came second. Okay. We came second overall two or three times. Mm-hmm. And um, we won, had class wins there, but we never won it. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's, again, the fact that you, you were there and uh, uh, you got as, as high as you did. Now that I know, carrying through um, the the aught years two thousand two two thousand six, I mean, you went Riley and Scott, and then Lola, uh, Porsche, Mazda. Is there anything that you you wanted to to talk about in that era? I know you. Well, had that, I think that, 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 I think that what happened there was uh, that uh, you know the prototypes started changing and the formula changed, and the the idea that. Um, that uh, and we, we got involved with the Lola because, uh, frankly, they were the only car out there. Uh, there were there were Ferraris and other cars, but we looked at the Lola, and um, the the first one we ran with them was uh, was I saw the the MGs run it in, in run at uh, saw one of the MGs run at uh, Le Mans. At least I saw it on television. Uh-huh. And I said, that is the slickest designed car I've ever seen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Based on its size and its body shape. Yeah. 
So I called Martin Barain, who was the owner of Lola, and I said, Martin, I want to get one of those cars. Well, no, we can't. They're, they're MG cars. And I said, well, look, if one of them comes available, you call me. Right. He says, well, let me see what I can do. I said, you call me. And so um, Martin... Uh, I was over in London on business, and Martin came down and uh, sat down with me at dinner. I think he was sizing me up because he'd never heard of me before. I guess he'd heard a little bit about us from running the, uh, you know, running in domestically in the U.S. We hadn't done anything in Europe, and so uh, we sat down and he says, "Look, let me see if I can get one loose." And he cut one loose, and we—that's when we started with the six seven five car. Okay. Where we won, we beat we beat uh, we beat everybody twice. We beat um, Audi and Panos twice. Oh my! And uh, you know we had a race team with you know five five or six guys beating beating you know uh, Audi had more in their catering truck, more people in their catering truck than we did in our whole team. So <laughs> it's kind of fun when you take Goliath down. So anyway, we had a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It was just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So the whole deal was is that um, that was a great car, and that got us hooked up with AER. Uh, they were doing our engines, and uh, we were putting some development money into it. And finally I said, look, why don't we start partnering up here with you guys? And that started our relationship with AER, uh, who currently supplies the engines to Indy Lights and the Mazda uh, Mazda prototypes that are running in in IMSA, and also uh, we we supply uh, two teams in the uh, World Endurance Championship, uh, the four cylinders in the lights, four cylinders, and the smallest engines in the paddock at the IMSA races. Okay, and then a then a then a three three point two liter twin turbo V six for the WEC. Okay. Well, one of the things that uh, in my research that really John and I, I know that we're we're running over here on time, Robin. I appreciate you giving giving up of some of your your day. Um, but as we start to wind down, one of the things that jumps jumps out to me is in 2012 how you had uh, at Road America. I think that's where you had that closest overall finish in a ALMS history. For the American Le Mans series, it was, wasn't it like eight hundredths of a second or zero point zero eight three to be precise. But it was uh... well, it was a we we had two, two we had two races out there, uh, two years in a row against the same team, Greg Pickett's Greg Pickett's prototype team against us. Greg was running. Uh, I can't remember. I think he might have been running a. I think we might have been running Porsches then. I can't. I can't quite remember the cars we were running. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, we had one race where they beat us by about by about uh, I think ten or twelve tenths of a second. Wow! And then the wow. next year, next year we came back and beat them by eight tenths of a second. So <laughs> it was the it was it. We traded that, and I said to I'll never forget at the end of the race. I said to Greg, I said. You know, from now on, we got to start asking for appearance money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that that's um, you're putting on a good show at the at the checkered. That's pretty good. That's really good. Exactly. Well, for the last exactly. the, the last five years, I get you've been in the PWC or the Pirelli World Challenge, and uh, 
the Bentley Continental GT3 and your son, Chris. You want to talk a, a bit about that for a second? Sure, yeah. We, um, Guy Smith called us. Guy had been working with us on the GTP days and, 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 and the, um, with the prototypes. And uh, a guy worked for us for about 10 or 11 years, and he called and said, say, Bentley's looking for an American race team to run their Bentley Le Mans GT3 car. And I said, well, gee, well, why don't we talk to him? Chris went over there and made the deal, and they came over. We ran those cars for, for a little more than two, about two and a half years we ran that in the Pirelli World Challenge. Okay. That was a good experience. Well, good experience. Sure. We, 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 the cars were... Cars were elegant cars, beautifully mm. built. And heavy. So, and, I mean, and, talk about and, stout. Uh, you know, they were beautifully built, and it was a great, it was a full package. They came with the hospitality and all that stuff. So oh, it was okay. really, it was really a, a, a really big deal. And uh, and I think we did fairly well with the cars. Mm -hmm. And now Chris is the, he's the behind the wheel. Yeah, Chris is doing, uh, we're doing a Trans Am. Chris has got uh, got a Mustang and Trans Am, okay. and he's also doing some um, some sprint car stuff, uh, uh, Silver Crown, USAC Silver Crown sprint cars. Yes. So he's running a few of those races, but he's mixing in with the Trans Am, and I think he's ahead in points. So far, he's ahead in points this year in the Trans Am. Excellent. Well, that's I tell you, that's an exciting. Those are exciting series of racing. People don't, that maybe aren't exposed to it should check it out. It's. Oh, they got they got a lot of cars running, and I'm telling you, it's tight racing. Yes, it is. It's a lot of tight racing. Yes, it is. Very, uh, very, very close. Very, uh, it comes right down to driver nerve and skill. That's right. For sure. That's right. Well, if I can just have you stay on the line for an extra minute, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and close this out and say, Rob, thank you so very, very much for giving up of your middle of your day and, and taking time to talk with me. Uh, certainly, uh, I can put out um, your your webpage and some other things, but are there any other ways that uh, people can learn more about Dyson Racing through social media or otherwise if they'd like to, to know more about what your team does? Well, that's the best way to do it is uh, DysonRacing.com. I think we've got a website there and mm -hmm. read the read the trade press. Occasionally we get in there too, so, you right. know, and uh, uh, we've got an interesting program, the prospect for an interesting program next year, so stay, stay tuned. All right. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much, Rob. Welcome back. We are in Studio A. Hope you enjoyed that discussion with Rob Dyson about Dyson Racing. Great individual, a lot of experience and skill over the years. And now as co-owner and uh, involved with the racing team, his son in racing uh, for having raced for Le Mans and some others. Uh, it's really great to have uh, him on the show and to be a part of the, the Cuber community. So to Rob and, and the whole Dyson Racing outfit, we thank you guys so much. Continue to listen, if you will. We look forward to having you and others put the word out there. We want to grow our community. And if you uh, feel strongly about the show, go ahead and give us a five-star rating and a review. Share us with friends and family, car clubs, you name it. We want to continue to expand and bring you great content over the months and the years to come. So, th so thank you so very much for being part of that. The trivia question was, what is the highest class in the Pirelli World Challenge Series? And of that, we have there's TC, TCR, TCA, GTS, GT. There's also a GTSA. But the answer is simply GT. Gran Turismo is this week's trivia answer. 
So we'll look forward to having you coming back next week. We are in the middle of doing a lot of interviews. We've been on the road most evenings, traveling sometimes up to an hour, two hours to get to uh, some great automotive hobbyists and those in the industry, pulling together that post-production and getting those those uh, ups- upcoming episodes ready for you all because we care and want to make this the very best podcast. So for now, I will simply say drive well, be well, and take care. <laughs>